Good day, love and salutations, good people. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Slow Wealth Podcast. I am Kendra. And I'm Ramon. And today we are going to talk about bank financing. We're going to talk about down payments, earnest money, finding and analyzing the property. And we'll also discuss some other things that affected us during the process of our financing, how um, the U.S. was changing from one... um, uh, political administration administration to another Mm -hmm. and how it affected us during our deal. We're not going to talk about politics so much, just how the politics, just how the politics affected our deal. Our first deal. Yes. Our very first First deal. deal. Um, And as I've been giving you every podcast, I'm going to sprinkle you with a little motivation here. You can't pour from an empty cup, take care of yourself first. And what that means is when you get on the plane, what is the first thing that they ask you to do? Put your mask on you first. Yes. You got to put your mask on. You got to save your own life before you go out there and try to help everybody else. Because if you ain't right with yourself, there is no help and no devotion, no amount of dedication that you can give to anyone. So make sure you always remember, put your mask on first. And with that said, we're going to get into the podcast. I just want to ask Ramon something. Oh, let me sip my quarantine first. <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> um, so, during this quarantine, what's, what, what is the market like? Like, discuss the housing market before we get into, you know, before we get into the um, meat of our podcast, what is the current housing market like? Would you invest during this market or would you, would you, you would? I would invest and I would buy to be holding. What do you mean when you say buy to be holding? Like, so you would buy and then sell later or would you buy and sell like in a couple of years. It depends on what your what your goals are. Um, for us, I think we're into it a long haul, you know. So we're. What buying. do you think? I'm just asking you. Know, <laughs> no, I'm just saying, no, we're on the same buy. page. You know? We're on the same page here, buddy. <laughs> so, you know, we, we buy and we hold. Now, our first property, uh, we didn't hold that long, but you know, we you know we won't get into that too much, but. For the most part, we're into buying and holding. And so, you know, with the current condition, the current climate, I think that we're on that that verge that the market is, is starting to decline. You know, we're, we're heading to that recession if we're not already in one because, you know, it really looks like we're, we're in one right now. And so this is when you really get your good deals. And, you know, a lot of people are like, man, this ain't the time to buy, man. The economy is about to, you know, go down and yada, yada, yada. Think about the people after 2008, who got into the market, you know, 2009, 2010, who bought and they held it until 2017, 18. Think about how much money that they just made, you know, when they sold their property. They just held it. They, they you know, they just, they, they stuck it out, you know. And I think a lot of people who are not trying to get into the market right now are, in my opinion, they're making a mistake. Because this is really, I think, the best time to get in. You're going to get the best deals, the best property, the best prices. 
and you're really going to get more property for your money because a lot of people are going to start unloading because they're scared. They don't know what's going to happen with the economy. You mean unloading their portfolios? Unloading their portfolios, whether that's a couple properties or a hundred. They're going to probably just start unloading them because, like I said, they, they might want to uh, stack up on their, their, their cash. You know, they, they want to make sure that they're liquid. They got enough cash in the bank. And so, you know, because a lot of investors, they, they are asset heavy. Man, they don't have as much uh, cash. You know, their money is in their property. It's working for them, which is not a bad thing. But, you know, you got to be in for the long haul. So if you ask me, buy, buy, buy. Yes, yes. This is the best time to buy. And as Ramon said, the um, economic challenges from 2008 allowed people that had no real estate <laughs> experience to purchase properties at a very uh, inexpensive rate. I mean, it was significantly less than what it has been, you know, the last seven years. And when they sold, I mean, they were making a hundred over a hundred percent sometimes on the property that they sold, which is great. I mean, because you can, you can, you know, do whatever you want with that money once the government gets their money first. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, it's always a preference. Some people feel as if they can't afford to get into the industry. And that's why we're here, to tell you that it is attainable. You can attain wealth with, you know, with almost little or no money. You just have to be strategic about how you acquire um, the properties. And um, as Ramon and I will discuss today, analyzing deals and stuff like that. Because everything has to be conducive um, to your future. I mean, mm. if you're not in this for, you know, the long haul, there are other ways that you can um, acquire wealth in real estate, which is like flipping homes and stuff like that. But we're not talking about that. We will specifically talk about the buy and hold because we want it, we, we want this to be our legacy. You know, we want to be able to pass this on to our children or, you know, family members and such. But uh, with that said, um, do you have anything else that you want to add to this? I just want to say this real quick, and we won't touch on this now, you know. And, and let me say this first. In these podcasts, we're probably going to leave out a lot of things because this would be an eight-hour podcast if we didn't, you know, if we just talked about everything. So, you know, we really want people to reach out and ask us questions because a lot of them we can't answer and that we may not answer in this single podcast. And we'll try to spread it out, you know. Um, but one thing I do want to touch on or say real quick is that when you think about wealth and properties, um, you know, real estate, which is property, is like the oldest profession. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's been on this earth, you know, for, for forever, if you want to say that. And so, you know, you got to think about if you have kids or somebody that you, you know, you want to pass things down to, like real estate is the perfect thing. And, you know, most wealthy people in America or in the world mm -hmm. own some form of property. And one thing that they use um, to, to when, they, when you talk about generational wealth and, you know, people who are getting properties handed down from generation to generation, so when they're born, they're pretty much born into, into wealth. And the one tool that they use to do that is called a 1031 exchange, which we did do. We just actually finished it 
I think last month. Last month. Um, you know, and we'll have a, a podcast where we can kind of go into that and how that was and, you know, our mistakes or what we could have did better and how it all went. But that is one tool that a lot of people use and have used and still use to this day to pass down properties to their kids, kids' kids, and so on and so forth. So I just really, you know, want to put that out there for people. You know, real estate is not a bad thing to get into. It's probably one of the best decisions that you can do. So let's go into it. Yeah, and uh, the other question that I almost forgot to ask you was what is your motivation um, to work in real estate? Because I think, too, you know, we, we continue to talk about legacy and stuff like that. But realistically, we got to live. We got to eat, you know, and, and, and we like the passive income, um, meaning that that income, we, we, we're not working for that income. We're not clocking in to a job for that income. Um, it's just, it's amazing. It really is. It, it really is amazing to go to sleep and know that your, money your money's is working. working for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sure. you don't have to, you don't have to wake up at 8 a.m., go to a job and be like, oh my God, I, I just, uh, I don't want to be here today. You got the case of the Mondays every day, you know, until Friday at four o'clock or five or whatever time you get off. And you're like, oh, it's the weekend. And then you got to do the same thing all over again. So, you know, that um, that gives a, a lot of, as I said before in the last podcast, that gives a lot of motivation. It makes you work harder. It makes you more determined. It makes you more focused. So uh, what is your motivation, Ramon? Oh, same thing. I mean, like you said, you know, the money. the And it's really not the money. It is, but it's not. You got to think, it's, it's not the money. It's what the money affords you. So the money can afford you the freedom, um, the time, to whether that's spend with more time with your family, to take more vacations, you know, to just do what it is that you want to do um, and not have to worry about, can I take time off at work? I don't, you know, because many times, you know, I try to get off at work or you try it and you can't and we can't get on the same schedule because, both of our jobs ain't letting us off at the same time. Right. That gets frustrating. And so, you know, real estate is an avenue that can take you down that path where you are your own boss. And, you know, like you said, your money is working for you. You can create your own schedule. Now, it's not easy, but nothing nothing that's worth it is ever easy. So, you know, I love it. Yeah, I love it. it. I take it. I take it. I take it all. <laughs> All right. So again, this is the Slow Wealth Podcast with Kendra and Ramon. If you want to reach us, you can email us at invest at slowwealth.com. That is I-N-V-E-S-T at S-L-O-E-W-E-A-L-T-H. And we are also on Facebook. On Facebook now at Slow Wealth. That's S-L-O-E Wealth. That's W-E-A-L-T-H. So you can reach us again by email and on Facebook. Again, remember to subscribe and love, Leave us a like. review. Leave <laughs> us a review. Leave us a comment, no matter what it is that you say or how you feel. You know what I'm saying? We just want to get this out there because we know some people need this information. You know, we want to give it out. Yes, sir. So let's get into the thick of our podcast, which is bank financing. Now, um, it can be a very intimidating when... You initially, when you initially start the process of finding a property, 
And then you got to worry about, oh my gosh, who is going to fund this deal? Um, how am I going to get money for down payment, earnest money? What does all this mean? So we are going to discuss what we did and how we can how you can benefit from this information. Um, again, if you have any questions, invest at slowwealth.com. Um, and we'll, we'll make sure that we address the questions that you have. Um, and we did get questions from, you know, one of our, uh, loyal viewers. <laughs> um, so we'll include those questions in this podcast. I'll be asking Ramon the questions and, uh, we'll both elaborate on, uh, the question that has been asked. So Ramon, you ready? What's the first one? Oh Lord have mercy. All right. So let's start with, um, the deal. Give some suggestions to analyze the deal because you first got to find something before, you know. Well, yeah. Yes. You got to, you got to find a problem. Yeah. Because we already talked about pre-approval and such. So now we're talking about the property. The property. So we didn't really know how to analyze at first. I think we were just looking for a four unit. And, you know, we looked at about 30 of them. So, you know, I'll briefly go on our first property. So our first property... um, once you know we kind of got it under contract, uh, you get all the documents, the lease, and everything like that. You can kind of see where that property stands financially, and then you have to kind of do your due diligence about the rents. You know, the rents is one of the the most important thing, probably the most important thing <laughs> with the property because you know if you ain't getting no rent, yeah, you doing you're in the wrong business. So. You got to look at what the current rents are of the property, and then you got to look at where those rents are market, the market rents. When you say market rent, what do you mean? Market rents is, you know, normally uh, you can say zip code or within a half to maybe a mile and a half uh, square radius of that property. Of the um, subject property. Of the subject property. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's say you have a two-bedroom, one-bath, such as our first property. And let's say the market, which is really the average rent, is twelve hundred. But let's say you you're buying that property, and the current rents of that property are uh, nine hundred. So you know that you got about a three hundred dollar difference uh, between the market and what your what the current rents are. And those you know what we would say in the you know real estate industry is is uh, below market rents. Mm-hmm. So they also call that value add. So there's some there's some uh, value to be had because you got $300 difference. So you really have to go in there and look and see those kind of units that's two bedroom, one bath for $1,200 a month. What do they look like? What are they offering? And then you have to look at yours and see, okay, what would I need to do to bump these rents up from 900 to 1200 and so that's how you, you, you make the money, you know, when you talk about the property. So our first property, four units, and the rents were what eleven hundred, uh, eight fifty, nine fifty, and, and ten fifty. And they were all two bedroom, one bath units. 
You know, everybody had a garage, front yard, backyard, washing dryer, everything. So the market rents at that time for those units was it was over thirteen hundred. Was it thirteen? Mm-hmm. It was over thirteen. Yeah, a little over thirteen hundred. So they were, you know, severely under market. Um, but you know, the property had 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 some maintenance issues. It wasn't taken care of. So when you talk about analyzing a deal like that, when you see the property and it's, it, is, it looks a little run down, it, you know, it, it needs some paint, it's dirty, the, the gutter was filled up, the roof was had moss caked up all, all up on it, it was trash everywhere, there was potholes, city in, in between the unit, people hanging out, like it didn't look good. But from an investor's eye, he knows how to look at that property and see what can I do to this property? I can make it look nice. And then what the rents are and what they're supposed to be, oh, there's some value to be had in that property. So, okay, when Ramon says you look at it with the investor eye, that doesn't, as we discussed before, you're not looking at the property and saying, oh my God, it's a dump. Um, it's in a, you know, it's in a good neighborhood, but it's a dump. I don't want to buy a dump. Okay, this is four units. You only have to, with a FHA, you only have to live on site for one year and your three other people are paying your mortgage. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you know, if you analyze the deal correctly. Um, so you have to look at it as, from a owner's perspective and not a buyer's perspective or a renter, aka renter. So renters look at something and they... They look for all the amenities. Does it have a swimming pool? Does it have this? Does it have the you know the the best of this, that, and the third? You're not living there forever. This is not your forever home. This is a home that this is a place where you'll live again for one year, and people are paying you rent to go toward the mortgage, your taxes, utilities, however the deal works for you. Mm-hmm. So let me let me let me say how I analyzed it. So when we finally picked this property, and we said, yeah, okay, you know, we want with this property, we like it, let's get it on the contract. As we said in our previous podcast, our realtor uh, Nick, he wrote up the contract. We got it accepted the next day. So boom, now is when you ask the owner, the seller, for all pro- all documents pertaining to that property. That means I need all the utilities. So any utilities that the owner pays for, we need copies of that. All the leases of all tenants, you need copies of that. Any addendums with the, those those leases, you know you you don't want the 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 owner having any kind of verbal contracts with the tenant. You don't need that. You need to know if there is that. But anything that's on paper that pertains to the income of that property, you need that information. So when we got that information, the leases, the utilities, and all that, and we saw that those those uh, units was uh, under rent, what you do under is, market under rent. market rent under market rent. So what you're doing is this: you're, you're you're trying to figure out the cap rate. Now the cap rate for a residential properties, which is one to four units, they do hold some weight, but not as much weight as they do when you get into multifamily, which is anything five units and up. With one to four residential units, what most holds weight is cap rate holds some, 
you know, the gross What's the rent, cap rate? The cap rate is, uh, so would you, so how do you find out the cap rate? If you take the, the net, the NOI, which is net operating income. So that's the utilities and all that that you pay during the time that you own this property. That's what the net, op, what does it cost to operate the property? So you're taking all the income from the property. So each unit that pays rent, you, you add up all those those rents, you times that by 12, 12 months in a year. You get that income. In our case, the income on this property was um, enough. <laughs> it was, let's say, I think 35000 So what we do is you have to now subtract all the expenses on the property except for the principal payment mortgage. So all the, the, the taxes, the utilities, all of that stuff, the expenses of the property, you have to subtract that from the income. And then what you have left over is called your net operating income, right? So we got the net operating income. You divide that by the purchase price. So if we, for example, divided 35000 by 505000 which is what the price of our first property was, we get a cap rate of six nine, so almost seven percent. So, the why the cap rate is kind of important is you want to look at and your realtor will know this. What is the average cap rate for that size of a property in that area? So, if you have a realtor and you're buying a four unit property, you want them to tell you, hey, what is the average cap rate in this area? What is that? What is that? Basically, is what? How many uh, owners or how many buyers are buying properties at what cap rate in that area? And if they come back and tell you, well, most buyers are buying properties around a seven percent cap rate, then you know you're in the you're in the ballpark. And so in our case, we was in the ballpark of the cap rate for that area, right? Okay. Now, since we know the, the, the net operating income. We got that. We know it's about a 7% cap rate. Now, the cap rate, just um, to give you an actual definition of it, is the estimated percentage rate of return that a property will produce on the owner's investment. So that's basically like, what is the percentage of money that I'm getting back from this property? Right. And, you know, like I said, when you get to the multifamily, that's when it's really important. Uh, residential, they, they, they rely heavily on comps. Um, now, what are comps? Comps. All right, so I'm, I'm <laughs> going to explain the comps. Comps is short for comparables. So if, for example, you had a four unit for 500000 or you bought it for 500000 let's say, and let's say you held it for three years, and let's say it went up, uh, let's say you held it for three years, and let's say now you're like, you know what? I want to sell my property. And so you find a realtor, you guys come on, okay, how much are we going to sell it for? She, they say, hey, how much you want to sell your property for? You're like, well, I want to get 700000 for it. Your realtor is going to go in their MLS, and they're going to look in the last six months mm-hmm. and see within, uh, I think it's a mile, maybe two miles square radius around your subject property. They're going to look in the last six months and see what property sold in your area that is very similar to your property. Now, if your property, uh, let's say there was three properties that was like yours, that was similar, and let's say they only sold for about 600000 
then that's going to give you an idea about what you can sell your property for. That's a comp. That's a comparable. So if you are trying to get 700000 but there's three properties that were similar to yours that sold in the last six months for 600000 that means you're kind of less likely to get that seven hundred, right? So you, you kind of want to gauge, you know, gauge how you want to sell it. So um, that's the comparables. Mm -hmm. So when you're analyzing the property, like I said, you're finding out the NOI. When you get the NOI, you divide that by the purchase price. You get your cap rate. Now, for this property, all the units were under market rent. So they were on the average... Two to three hundred something dollars. Yeah. Well, more than more that than because that. <laughs> two of the units were Section Eight, and Section Eight is great. You know, I tell you, Section Eight is so good. I love Section Eight. So a lot of people don't like Section Eight. I like Section Eight. So oh, two of the right. units, two of the units, they were Section Eight. One lady, she was eight fifty. Her rent should have been thirteen. We ended up pushing her up to thirteen hundred. So we we bumped her up. Was that four hundred fifty dollars? Yes. The other uh, unit, it was ten fifty. They were supposed to be thirteen. We bumped them up two hundred fifty dollars. So you got to think that's three. What did I say? Four fifty, mm -hmm. four fifty, and two fifty. That's seven hundred dollars right there per month that we added to the income. So, and it does add to the value of the property, also. If, listen, when you talk about multifamily, which is five units plus. If you add that kind of income monthly to your property, you, you're going to be amazed at the value that you just added. Because multifamily is not based on comparables. Mm -hmm. Multifamily is based on the cap rate, the income. So anything that you do to that property to increase the income, you increase the value substantially. With anything in residential, which That's is four a, units or less. Four units or less. It helps greatly to increase that income, but you also have the comparables as well. So, you know, but the income does help. So, you know, I don't want people to get that misconstrued. Please increase the income as much as you can. So right there, two of the units, we were able, we, we saw where we can increase the rent $700 extra per month. Just on two units. Just now, two mind units. you, this is... There's yeah. two other units. Two now, other one units. of them, uh, the one that was nine fifty a month, we had to kick them out because we had to live there. Yeah. So, you know, that was one of the stipulations with FHA is you have to live on site. But you you don't have to move in until 60 days. They give you 60 days from the time that you close to move in the property. Yes. Now, there's some people who don't ever move in. We ain't talking about those we, people. We talking about what's legally <laughs> binding. Gonna, we're not going to tell you what you can and can't do. I'm just saying, you're supposed to move in within 60 days. Now, I don't know if they're going to come knock on your door. Who knows? But, you know, you just got to make sure you move in. So, one of those units, we did have to give them a notice uh, the day after we closed, I believe. Or maybe the day we closed, mm -hmm. we gave them a 20-day notice which was a requirement in the state of Washington. And you always want to check the requirements of giving your tenants notices according to your state guidelines. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we moved in. Now, the third unit, the, the other unit, she she was 1100 a month. Now, you know, the kind of messed up thing is she had just signed a lease three months before we closed. And it was like in October. So we closed in February. She has a lease that goes all the way to October. So eight months 
we couldn't do anything with her rent because she's is on the lease already. And when you sign the lease, even if the owner sells it to another owner or another buyer, that lease has to be uh, followed. You know, you can't break that. That's a that's contractual agreement that stays with the property. So her rent stayed at eleven hundred until that that October. Yeah, until the end of her lease. Mm-hmm. And once her lease came up, we raised her. We raised her up to thirteen hundred. Now I know some people probably listening to this, and I don't want to go too fast. I just want to say, but you know, they're like, man, hold on, how you get people from a <laughs> from eight to, to from eight fifty to thirteen hundred. <laughs> now, see, when you go into a property, people want to see value. They want to see what value you're adding to their homes because a lot of potentially these people can live there for a very long time. We had one tenant that lived there when we bought it for over ten years, and she wasn't going anywhere. She made that very clear. Mm. So, um, you want to make sure that you're showing the tenants value. We went into each unit after we did all of our inspections and stuff um, with FHA and then did, you know, did the inspections with the actual appraiser or the inspector. Um, we went in ourselves and asked them for estoppel agreements. Now, Ramon will explain that in just a moment. Um, basically, what it is is the tenant is telling you how much they pay. You're getting the information from the tenant's perspective. Um, but we went into each unit and said, okay, what do you, what, what do you see is wrong with what needs to be fixed? Yes. Well, I asked, what do you see is wrong? Because I wanted there, some people, you know, when you ask them that they were kind of like, uh, they would give an honest Mm -hmm. answer instead of what do you think needs to be fixed? You know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I went through (laughs) each unit. And things that I saw, I wrote down, no matter how minute it was, that changed the entire trajectory of the relationship between landlord and tenant. Because they were like, hold on, nobody's cared about us for this long. And you're coming in here and you're fixing things great. You know, that just opened up the lines of communication. Um, Now, you're not doing this to be their friend. And you're not doing it to showboat or to high side. You're doing it because this is your investment and you want to make sure that you're checking, you're taking care of your investment. This is your money. So when we went in there and we, you know, looked at each unit, what was wrong with it, things that we saw and, and things that we didn't see that the tenant noticed, you know, where they had leaks and stuff like that, you know, like, why is this? We were wondering why the water bills were so high. Well, lo and behold, they had leaks. So we had to get that fixed, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they had running toilets. Yeah, that they didn't say anything to the owners about. You know, the owners was kind of crappy anyway. But you know, not to go too 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 much into mm-hmm. that. You know, when you talk about the 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 analyzing of this property and increasing, and increasing the rent. why you increase the rent. You know, so why we really went through with this deal and we closed was because of what I just told you. We increased one unit from eleven hundred to thirteen hundred. That's two hundred dollars extra a month. That's twenty four hundred extra dollars per year. We increased the second unit from eight fifty to thirteen hundred. That's four hundred and fifty dollars extra uh, per month. I ain't gonna do the rest for the year. I don't know that right now. <laughs> <laughs> the third unit we put them from ten fifty to thirteen hundred. That's two fifty. So that's seven hundred and two. That's nine hundred and fifty dollars per month. That we went in there and we increased the income on that property. That's almost twelve thousand dollars a year, right? Yeah. That's what eleven five. That per year, 
So if you go in, you put that onto the NOI, the income, you know, if you put that to the gross income, uh, gross income, if you do that with uh, all the units that we had, the income, it was 47400 for the year. Now, we went in there and we added 10800 yes per year. So that's what 57 58000. So we increased the the annual income, the gross income on that property uh, almost $11,000. Now it wasn't easy, but you got to think $11,000 so we, the total income we put it to 58200. Now 58200 divided by 505,000, which is what we bought the property for. Now you're going to see the difference in the uh, cap rate. It just jumped to 11 and a half cap rate. From 7? 7% cap rate. So we bought the property at a 7% cap rate. We went in there, fixed all the deferred maintenance and some other things, and that cap rate jumped to 11.5% at the same purchase price. So you got to think, if we decided to have sold that property you know, some years down the line, which we did sell it anyway. If we would have sold it for, let's say, you know, we say, hey, we want to get 200 extra thousand, that cap rate might go back down towards that 7%, which was the average cap rate for the area. So you got to understand that, you know, you, you by you going in and increasing those income, that rent like that, you just you just made yourself a few hundred thousand dollars in equity. So, you know, and, and, and the work that it took us, it took us maybe six, seven months to really stabilize that property to do that. You know, but you got to think, how long would it take you in your job that you're going to every day and clock in? How long would it take you to make $200,000? And to get a <laughs> a pay increase. You know, um, there, there's a lot of factors when you're working a job. There are no such things as wealthy employees. No, at all. And so, you know, um, again, so that right there, when we analyzed that and we did those numbers on that, I saw that, okay, this is a good deal. And I was kicking myself because I'm like, man, I wish we'd have bought this property when we first started looking because we could have probably got a better deal. We probably could have paid less for this property. Mm-hmm. And to have more equity. To have more equity. You see what I'm saying? So um, that was really, you know, kind of just how, you know, we kind of analyze it. So basically, to go kind of recap, when you see your property you like, you look at the purchase price. You look at how much the rents are. You take the rents, you add them together, and you times it by 12, you get your total amount. That's your gross. You find out what the expenses are on the property, and you deduct the expenses from the gross income. Everything except for your mortgage payment, your principal and interest. All the expenses to the property, you deduct it from the gross income. And then that will leave you with your, what they call NOI, net operating income. You take your net operating income and you divide that by the purchase price of the property that you are analyzing. And that will give you your cap rate. When you find out what the cap rate in the area of the property that you're looking at, that'll give you an idea if that's a good deal or not. Because if your average cap rate in the area is... Let's say people are buying at a 7% cap rate and, you know, you find this property and you analyze it and it's even higher. That means that's more cap, that's more equity for you. Um, And when you look at the rents, 
You can find out what the rent is. We use a website called rentometer.com. That's R-E-N-T-O-M-E-T-E-R, rentometer.com. You go in there, you put in the address of the property, you put in how many bedrooms, and you hit submit. It'll tell you what the average rents in that area. And that'll give you an idea of what you're really looking at. Yeah. And just as a disclosure, um, this is not a homogenized industry. You will not find that everything is the same. Everyone's deal is different. Um, So the information that we are giving you is from our perspective and our experience um, when we analyze our properties. So whenever you start analyzing your property or your deal, you want to make sure it's according to the numbers that work for you. And for the cap rates, the numbers that work in that general area, because you'll find that in some cities, a 12% cap rate is great. In some cities, a 7% cap rate is great. So that's kind of how you have to analyze your deal. Again, this is not a cookie cutter industry. You want to make sure that you are being very diligent about the numbers that work for you. We're giving you an example about what worked for us. Exactly. All right. So next... I want to ask Ramon, um, or I will ask Ramon, how did we know the Seattle property was the right property to purchase? And when I say property, I mean the actual property, the four units. So I felt like, you know what, this is a, man, this is a deal. Um, Even though we was going to have to go in there and do a lot of work to it, because, you know, that owner... They were Chinese. I'm, I'm sure we said that before. We mentioned that they were Chinese. Yeah, they were international investors. International. So it was a lot we was dealing with just on that end, from the escrow agent, everybody. Um, two days before we closed on the property, there was a snowstorm, and two of the trees in the backyard fell and broke one of the fences, and the other one fell on the wood fence and didn't break. They didn't want to fix it. They didn't want to get the trees cut, get it removed. They didn't want to do it. Uh, it was some of the stuff on the property that, that uh, we needed fix to pass the FHA inspection. They didn't even really want to do. So, like, they were being very difficult. Like, I think it took us a little over 45 days to close on this property, which normally residential, 30, 35 days. It took us longer. Um, so, you know, but, like, again, when I did, when I analyzed the property, I looked at the income. I looked at where the rents were, where they could be. Um, you know, what the expenses was on the, on the property, you know, the utilities, like she said, when we looked at the utilities, like they were like eight, 900 a month for two units. And we like, man, that that's crazy. It's high. Like, how are these people, we were wondering, like, how are these people making any money? Now I will say one thing with this property, I did not like, and we fixed it is they had their own outside water faucet. So, <laughs> you know, you know, that man. That man, Each they, unit had their own outdoor water faucet, and they ran it and all the, the time. Man, they had it in the front. They had a faucet in the front by the garage. They had a faucet on the side by the door. Uh, and I believe uh, a couple of them had a faucet in their backyard. So, you know, and a few of them had kids. Well, one of them, she had kids. So she had the pool out in the driveway. She was filling that joker up. You know, with water and they playing it and everything, you know. So, and on these units, the kind of messing part I did not like was everybody did not have their own separate uh, 
uh, trash receptacles. Well, no, not just trash receptacles, but the utilities were master metered. And what I mean by that is there was no way to separate the utilities per unit. So everybody had their own water heater, but all the utilities were connected in each duplex, except for the electricity. Yes. So the water bill, the sewer, all of that we had to pay, and the trash. So, you know, when we see, I see them playing within the pool, and I'm like, okay, where they get that water from? <laughs> I'm like, oh no, okay, I see why, I see why the bills are high. And then we we through, went through all the units. One of the tenants or two of them, they had their uh, toilet was running continuously, and they said, well, we told the owner, okay, well that will run your bill up. Your toilet is running continuously. Mm-hmm. That will run the bill. So once I seen that, and I said, okay, we need to fix that toilet. We need to put locks on those faucets outside, you know, because if we have to pay for it, we, I'm not going to pay for you to be out here uh, with your personal swimming pool. Yeah, you got the whole <laughs> swimming party. Yeah. The whole block of kids was There <laughs> was, was people a, that was were, at her there, house. There's people that didn't even live around there that I caught coming up getting water out the faucet. And I'm like, hey, who are you? Oh, I know so-and-so over here. Okay, but why are you getting water? You you don't pay for that. So, you know, like, it, it, hey, we we was on some robo Yeah, stuff. we were. For, you know, but we had to, you know what I mean? Because, that, like she said, that's our investment. And that and that's income coming out, coming out of our pocket. So when I seen the big picture, I said, okay, you know what? I can see what we need to do. And I can see where the money is going to be in. And I tell you, I'm so glad we did because did it pay off? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. It paid off. Now, okay, so you went over um, if that was the right property and how to analyze the deal. The other thing is uh, now we're going to get into the lender. How did we choose our mortgage lender? Because in the previous podcast, we talked about Mike. Uh-huh. And we talked about Bill. Uh-huh. Now, Mike was somebody that just didn't work for us. And as as we explained with uh, realtors or your real estate agents, some real estate agents are more experienced in single family homes. You have some that do commercial um, properties, some that do multi-units. Nick specialized in multi-units for our realtor. And Bill... He knew a lot about both single family units and multi units. Mike did not. Mike only knew about single family. single family homes. Now the company he worked for had the funds available to to loan to us for you know the four units. However, he didn't know how to make that deal happen. He didn't know how to crunch the numbers. Mm-hmm. So with all that said, again, how did we choose our mortgage lender? So, like we said in our, our past uh, podcast, we went with Bill. Now, the reason why I was comfortable and I like Bill uh, was because, like she mentioned, you know, previously, Bill asked us for stuff up front. So he's like, okay, send me the property that you're trying to get. Because what happened is, you know, when you, when you find your real estate agent, you you find a lender. He tells you, okay, give me all your your, your information. I'm gonna run your credit, and I'm gonna tell you how much how much house you can go get. 
So, you know, they come back and say, all right, you know what? You can get a house up to 300000 Now, that means you can get a house, a duplex, triplex, or a fourplex as long as it don't go over 300000 So when he told us that number, we went out and we found a four unit for the, for the amount that he said we could get it for. But he asked us for information beforehand, so it was like he was getting us ready. And so, you know, through that process, he didn't ask us for a lot of information, which, you know, a lot of people, you're going to go through that. They're going to, these lenders are going to ask you for something. They're going to ask you for the same thing 12 times. And you're going to swear, like, dude, I just gave you my, my, my bank statements. I, I just, just gave, gave you my, my pay stubs. <laughs> but they're going to ask you for it again, and, and you don't know why, because the underwriter is really the one who's asking you for this. And, you know, they, man, they, it, it'll discourage you, I'm going to be honest. It will discourage you, but don't don't let it, you know, keep through it uh, because it's bigger than that. So, you know, with Bill, again, he was very diligent. He was, he, he, he was knowledgeable. Um, and, man, let me tell you, he was knowledgeable, and he was good. You know, we can throw him, we tell him, hey, this how much they asking for, and it was about 5000 more than what we was pre-approved for. He made it work. Mm-hmm. He looked at our credit. He see what, you know, a couple of things on our credit that, hey, pay this off. You know, drop that payment, do this, do that. We did it, and and, and it went through. And, uh, you know, again, you know, he was, like I said, he was knowledgeable. He knew the right things. And, you know, looking back, we know that that was the right choice. Absolutely. Um, because we, we, when we refinanced on that pr- same property, we used him to refinance. And, you know, our property got appraised for exactly the amount he said it would. Yeah. I won't go in detail about that, but. Yeah, because you don't need to be knowing all of our money. <laughs> all right. So um, after we found Bill and we found that he was the um, best mortgage lender for what we needed, what kind of terms did Bill give us? So we got, at that time, we got a really good interest rate, Yeah, which is almost close to what the interest rates are now. Uh for a four unit. And now, again, let me say, because you can use FHA for anything from a house to a four unit, that does not mean that you'll get the same interest rate. So your interest rate, for example, might be a 3% on the house, but to go get a four unit, it might be 3.75. So for us, we had a 3.75 interest rate. And actually, I think we paid a point or half a point to get it down there. We did. Because the interest rate, they were, they weren't super high. You know, they're still historically low, but I think they were a little, about four and a quarter or something. We paid about a half a point or so to get it down to 3.75%. So our monthly payments would be less. So our monthly payments would be less. Now, the reason why that happened. So let me kind of go into how bills. Now. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. ahead. Okay, so. Just to set, just to paint a picture here, when we started on this process, it was 2017. 16? Mm-hmm. 2016. So we closed on it February 2017. So we just want to paint a picture so you can see the timeline here when Ramon gets into the, to the thick of the, the deal, the terms, excuse me. Yeah, so, you know, that does play a significant role in our first deal and, and, you know, everything that transpired. So, uh, you know, as far as the terms, he got us a 3.75% rate. We paid a, a point or, or half a point to buy it down. Now, 
The reason why is because of this. So with our FHA, when you, you pay 3.5% down, our mortgage payment has to be under a certain amount based on so many factors. And it's too much to go into because a lot of these are the lenders, what they, what they deal with in, in-house. So we had a certain mortgage payment, but it was over, it was minute, it was like maybe $50 more than what FHA required. So he gave us three options to get that payment lower so this loan could go through or it wasn't going to go through. And so what was happening is at the same time, 2016, late 2016, remember Obama was still in office, Trump was getting elected in. Now, we're not going to talk about any... No politics. No politics. We're just talking about how it affected us. So, before Obama, you know, or Trump was being elected into office, Obama had put something in place with the mortgage uh, uh, industry where they were going to drop, I think the mortgage insurance... I want to say it was like uh, from 0.85% to like 0.65%. And what that was going to do, that was going to help our mortgage payment to go down because of the mortgage insurance that we were paying on our, our mortgage. And so what Bill was saying, he was like, okay, you know what? What we can do is we can wait until after December 31st. We can wait till January 1st, and this will kick in, and then we'll just go ahead and go through with the loan. It'll put your payment under that amount that FHA requires. So we was like, oh, okay, cool. And mind you, for our down payment, we was only having to bring to the table about thirteen thousand. We had already re- we had already put down five thousand for our earnest money. And the normal uh, percentage that you want to put down for earnest money, just a, a rule of thumb, is one percent of the purchase price. Now, with earnest money, you don't have to put any money down, but as good faith, you want to give money. And in most cases, if you don't put a earnest money down, your offer won't get accepted because <laughs> the earnest money is, like she said, good faith. But it's it's also telling the buyer, I mean the seller, sorry, that hey, I'm serious. So if you know, the higher you put down, the more serious you look. So if the if the normal is one percent of the purchase price, if you come through with three or five percent, that seller like, oh, hey, yeah, go ahead and take his offer. Mm-hmm. So we had already put down one percent. I think it was like five thousand. We only needed to bring thirteen thousand to the table to close. So what happened? Uh, <laughs> yes, Trump. <laughs> Trump got in. You know, he got elected. He put uh, what's his name, Ben Carson, as under the hood, under hood housing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what he did was that that um, the little change that Obama had put in place that was going to kick in on January first. I don't know if you guys remember, but Ben Carson came in and he put a freeze on on everything on HUD. So what that did was now we didn't get that lower percentage rate that was going to lower our mortgage insurance premium, that was going to lower our mortgage so that FHA loan could go through. So we had three options. (laughs) And of those three options, the one we picked was the best option, which don't sound like it, but it was the best option, and that was come to the table with 11 more thousand dollars down now <laughs> more than 11 thousand more <laughs> it was 11 and 12 thousand because we ended yeah. up putting about thirty thousand dollars down and you know you got to think i i was i was beyond this because i was like whoa <laughs> where is <laughs> you know? this supposed yeah. to come from i mean it was hard enough for us to come up with fifteen thousand. you know and um but 
you know, we, we came up with it, obviously. You know what I'm saying? We did come up with it. but Of our own money. Of our own money. And, you know, I'll go into that a little briefly, you know, um, you know, a little bit later. But uh, we did come up with the extra money. And so that helped us to push our mortgage payment under the FHA um, guideline of that loan to let that loan go through. And so Bill, being who he was, he was diligent and he saw what we needed to do. He gave us some options. He told us how we could maneuver around that and everything. And unfortunately, you know, we had to come with more money to the table. But it, it was it was a smooth process. The hardest part of that was making a decision to come with more money to the table. Because, you know, that was just more money that we didn't expect to have to put out. And so, you know, that that was a... Uh, yeah, those are our terms. So, you know, we did get in a good 3.75% 30-year um, term. So and when you talk about residential, anything from one to four units, you can get 30-year amortization. So your loan is spread out over 30 years. Now, if you want to go less than that, that's up to you. But your mortgage payment is going to be higher. So the, the lower that your amortized uh, loan is, the higher your payment. So some people elect to have a 15-year loan because they want to pay it off quicker. But their loan, if you think about it, is going to be almost double what it would be on a 30-year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had 30 years, 3.75% uh, interest rate, and we have mortgage insurance. So, uh, hey, next question. Let's go. Let's go. Right. Okay, so right now the FHA uh, interest rate is 3.125%. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. And the APR is... Four percent, something like that. Yeah, almost the same interest rate we had. So that, yeah, that's that's pretty good. That's for FHA now. VA, man, VA loans, which are the veteran loans, they gotta make because <laughs> it's at two point eight seven percent and three point two four percent. And real quick, anybody out there that's a veteran or you know veterans who's looking to buy a property, mm-hmm. if they don't know about the VA loan. I don't know a whole lot about it because, you know, we're, neither one of us have been in the military, but, um, you know, those are great loans because they have those loans to where you don't have to put any money down. Um, VA is no money down. You can put some down, but they have different little programs within the VA. And like she said, the interest rate a lot of time is lower than an FHA or conventional loan. Um, so, you know, again, VA loans, if you guys are military, utilize that because you can get up to a four unit property with no money down yes yeah our neighbors did and and they mm-hmm. they was in the money i mean all that money yeah, went the to money. them yeah, <laughs> all that money went to them so that's definitely a blessing and now thank you for your service um <laughs> now are the fha terms the same for multi-units as they are for single family units uh no now, they are in a sense where, like, again, you can use FHA for anything one to four. But um, normally, and I'm not going to say that it never happens, but normally, your interest rate is not the same for a one unit as it would be for a four unit. Mm-hmm. They have different terms. Um, and it, it probably won't be the same for a one unit, you know, a house, as it would be for a duplex. So uh, FHA, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mae, they have certain guidelines. And the lenders, the banks... They follow these guidelines. But then the banks, they also can kind of come up with their own little rules, which are which are called overlays. Mm-hmm. 
I won't go too much into that, but overlays. So the banks, let's say FHA, which I think has went up now, but FHA um, used to have the requirement for your credit score to be at least a 580. But as of today, I believe that is what, is that a 620 now? For FHA? FHA. FHA, the credit score guideline went up since this whole uh, coronavirus. Oh, yeah, they up. did change it to 620. I think, I think it's about a 620 now. It might be higher. Um, for for your uh, credit to be able to get an FHA loan, so you got to think if FHA says, "Hey, in order for us to get a, get one of these loans, they need to have at least a 620 credit score." But the bank that you go through, the bank might say, "Yeah, we'll follow that," but you know what? We want them to have at least a 660 to make us comfortable. Mm-hmm. They can do that. That's called an overlap. So they have the power to say. Yeah, we'll take you with a 620 or no, we need you to have a 660. So, you know, again, a house and a four unit, there's different terms. Um, but the way I look at it is if I only had to put down three and a half percent and I can get anything from a house to a four unit, why would I get a house? Right. It almost, it, I won't even say almost, it don't make sense. I'm going to get the most I can for the same <laughs> the same thing. Right? right, because again, we lived in four units. We lived in one unit and have three people paying our rent, paying our mortgage. mortgage. Sorry, and, and our utilities. And our when we went in there, we increased that rent. We didn't pay a mortgage at we all. We didn't pay it out. All we paid was our utilities. Actually, we didn't even pay our own utilities because they was paying it for us. Mm-hmm. They the the income was high enough that it was paying all the mortgage and the utilities. And the, and the messed up part, if you will, is that we would have gotten more money. Had we not lived there, but because we had an FHA loan, we had to stay. So, but you know, just think about that. All you guys out there who actually pay rent, you know, you paying a thousand, twelve, fifteen. Some people I know paying two thousand. Mm-hmm. We gonna pay nothing, and that's not the brag. That's just to say that you know. I mean, look at that. You know what I'm saying? Like, and people out here they buying houses, and you know, and I'm not knocking that. You know, buy your house. But then you ask them, well, why won't you just buy something you know bigger, duplex, triplex, for Oh, man, I don't want to deal with that. But you'd rather deal with having to go and pay rent, going to work. And then you, you run into something like this, the coronavirus, where so many people got laid off, you know, and now you still got to pay rent. And with our tenant, they still got to pay rent because we still got to pay a mortgage. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah, hey, the terms, you know, like I said, again, they're different. But if you're, if you're putting down the same down payment, you might as well go big. Go big or go home. Right. Take it, yeah, take advantage of it. That's for sure. Um, now, with the FHA down payment, or not down payment, excuse me, uh, credit score and credit guidelines, just to briefly talk about that, um, 580 or higher is typical. Because of COVID, it has um, increased to 620. We're not saying that you shouldn't try. I mean, because 580, again, is the minimum um, for FHA loan requirement. So you still want to, if it's in your heart to do it, you know, you still want to try um, at with the 580 credit score and allow your mortgage lender to tell you whether or not you qualify, um, you know, for a loan for pre-approval. So again, this is not a cookie cutter industry. Things change from person to person, situation to situation. So you still want to try 
through um, through all of this. Because if you have a good lender, they'll make it work. All right. So um, next, we'll talk about how we... Now, how did you withdraw the money from your 401k and how long was that process to receive the disbursement of funds? So, um, let me say this first too. You know, for people out there, if you've been on your job for a while, that helps. Yeah. You know, if you got uh, any kind of retirement plan that you can draw from, that helps. Savings, that helps. Like, you know, People who've been on the job where they're quitting job and they're going from job to job, like it's kind of hurting you. Um, you know, longevity, you know, you got to think of your credit score, you know, ha- having at least a decent credit score, you know, being on your job for a few years. Um, when you say mo- a decent credit score, what do you mean? Because somebody could think uh, 620 is decent. Well, okay, yeah, that, that's cool. It is decent until the bank tell you it ain't. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you can. You can I put it like this. If you're scared to look at your credit score, it ain't decent. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you smile when you look at your credit score, it might be all right. You know? So, a right. decent, to me, a decent credit score, because you got to think, the highest credit score is, is like 850. So, if you got a 600, mm. you know, that's 250 points less than, you know, the, the max. So, you got to think, the closest to 700, I'll say that's a decent credit score. If you're, if you're over 700, you're really good. Right. You know what I'm saying? 720, 750, you know, so on and so on. So, uh, you know, um, you know, you really just want to make sure that you you got your ducks, you know, all in a row. So with the with the 401k, you know, because I had started my 401k some years prior, I had built up enough. Now, I didn't know going into this that I could borrow borrow from it. Yeah, because that was a hell of a conversation to get you to borrow from your 401k because I had to beg Ramon, Ramon, we can, we have the money. You can borrow from your 401k. I'll borrow from mine. So. Hey, you see what she said? We have the money. Yeah. You know <laughs> hey, we have the money, you know. Okay, well, you know, where's you, yeah, you know me, but like she said, I did not want to do it. You know, <laughs> I, we, we have the money, but I didn't want to do it because that I'm not gonna lie. That I had never had to put out that much money at one time, and I'm looking at what I had built up in my 401k over the years, and now I got to just give all that up. Well, not all of it, but I got to give a good portion of it up. It was tough. That was the hardest thing, you know, as far as like I said, the process of getting that property. That was the hardest decision. Was her convincing me <laughs> to give up that money? Like, go ahead and take the money out of your account, you know, take it on out and go give it to them. I'm like, oh, hey, hold up. You know, but, you know, she's like, look, this is an investment. This is a long term. You know, this is this is going to be the best thing for us to do. And you know what? At the end of the day, I'm glad she convinced me because we probably wouldn't be. In a we made we far more money than the money he borrowed from himself yeah. from his 401k plan. So that's kind of how you ha- have to think about it. It makes more sense. You know, if you think about a business, you got to spend money to make money. And, you know, it, it don't sound right when you say it, but when you do it, you see, oh, okay. So, like she said, that was a minor investment. It was a big investment for me, <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a good but minor investment 
as far as the return that we got on that money. So, you know, I think it's really just making that jump because, you know, a lot of people, it's scary. You know, you're like, hey, when they like, yeah, you're going to need to bring about 20000 to closing. And you're like, you know, I only got twenty five. you know, so I'm going to have 5000 left. But it's, 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 it's going to be one of the best investments you make. So, you know, again, with my 401K, um, with my 401K plan, I know everybody has a different one, You, but most of them, is the same where you can take money out as a loan or you can take what they call a withdrawal. Um, and you have the home, uh, you have the you have the, re- the withdrawal, which is like a hardship withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do a hardship withdrawal because on our on my uh, 401k, hardship withdrawal, um, you are taxed like 10% up front and then, or you can either pay it up front or you have to pay it around tax time. And then with my 401k, it would get suspended for six months. I can't make any contributions. I can't take anything out, yada, yada. I did a loan. Now, with the loan, one of the options is a home loan. So if you take out a regular loan, uh, you can do it up. You can repay yourself because you're repaying yourself. You're borrowing from yourself. You're repaying yourself back with interest. You can do it uh, on my on my uh, 401k up to four years. But if I took the money out to buy a home, I had up to 10 years to pay it back. And it was the same with mine, too. So you got to think, if you're taking out 20000 of your 401k and you got to pay it back over four years, you know, let's just say your payment is 300 a month. Now, if you can stretch it out over 10 years, now you're cutting your payment in half. You know what I mean? So... That really helped when I found that out. And then you got to also think, we use this, we use the home loan from my 401k to buy four units. Not just a house, four units. So when I took that money out, put it in a bank, and we use that for our down payment. So the 13000 I we initially thought we was going to have to bring to the table. When he said, hey, you know what? Uh, HUD just put a freeze on the whole on the whole thing, mm-hmm. and for this loan to come through to go through, you guys might have to bring another eleven thousand to the table. I was mad, but at the same time, I had it, so we didn't have to stop. The train didn't have to stop. I just took out more money. I took out that full amount that I needed, and we went and we closed. And, like, again, the return on that money is crazy. So, you know, that's one option that you guys have when you talk about financing or bringing money to the table for your down payment is your 401K. A lot of people got 401K. They probably didn't know that they could use it for this. Um, you know, you might have a little bit in your savings, you know, or whatever, but your 401K, you can use it. Yeah, and you want to talk to the company that, uh, or you want to speak with the company that, um, administrates your uh, 401k plan to see if those options are available to you to um, borrow uh, the money from yourself to purchase a home um, because as Ramon said the terms could be different for your 401k plan but it is available to you to you know relinquish that money um, to use toward the down payment of your home and they'll ask too like what are you using the money for because when 
I know when I called, I did explain to them, hey, we're purchasing a home. And they were like, oh, okay, well, we can spread it out over 10 years in mine. They could go a little further too. Um, and the payments were, you know, minimal. So that definitely helps. You just have to send them your purchase and sale contract. Yes. When you, when you know, the, the contract, when you have the property under contract, you just have to send that to your, your 401k. Because they just want to show, see proof that you're actually buying a home. Yes. And that's normally that's it that you have to send them all your other information they have. Um, and, man, you're good to go. Yeah, you are. And how long did it take before we actually got the money um, for our 401k? I think mine took seven days. It took a week. Uh, mine did not. Seven business days. Mine didn't because, this is a little nugget. You have to uh, input your address. Mm -hmm. You have to put your bank account if you want it to come directly to your bank account. Mm -hmm. You have to do that in advance. If you do it before, they make you wait like seven to ten days. Yeah. And so if I had to do that, <laughs> I don't know if the loan would have went through because we'd have been holding up closing. So it was lucky that I had already did that. So when that loan got approved, I had the money in my account within like I don't know two three days. Now, we'll go back a little bit, too, because you're, I, I know people are wondering, like, how did you know to use your 401k? Um, Bill, when we initially went to him, he asked us how we were going to have the money for our down payment. Now, we did have some savings, mm -hmm. you know, and then yes. he looked at, you know, he's seen everything we had. You know, we showed him all our bank accounts, our pay stuff, how much we made. I had 401k, so that put us up. And, you know, he, I, I mean, what did he ask? Did we, was we going to use some of that 401k? Yeah, he asked, he, he specifically asked, are you using your 401k? If you are, you need to make sure that you do everything necessary to, um, you know, so we can get the money, you know, expediting. Mm -hmm. He, because as Ramon said before, we want to make sure that we're not holding up closing, trying to get that money at the last minute, because then the seller will say, well, I can't, you know, I can't wait or, you know, whatever, they can work their way out of the deal. So um, we we did it the moment we went to Bill. I think like that next day we were both, you know, trying to get that information together. But because we were using the majority of Ramon's um, 401k, um, it didn't take as long. And I had to make some, some changes with mine and my uh, 401k um, disbursement took longer. So... Yeah, that that's kind of, that's the process of um, how we got our down payment. And as far as the escrow money, um, we use some of our savings and um, or not the escrow money. I'm the sorry, earnest. the earnest money. <laughs> the earnest money. We use so, our savings, like the five thousand. We had some in our savings. We put that up. And yeah. You put that up. When you go on the contract, you get. Uh, I think it's three about days. Two to three days. Mm -hmm. You have to put that earnest money up. Or in the contract, most contracts, it'll have it in the fine print that you have to put this money up within two to three days or you can void that contract. The, the seller can back out mm -hmm. because then they can think, okay, you're not serious. Right. And, you know, a lot of times you might go on a contract with a seller, but they also have a backup. So if you don't work out your finance or whatever, somebody's waiting to buy that property. Yeah. So, when you know, if you like that property and you get on a contract, you got to make sure that you're able to close on it. And that's when you find, you, you make sure you find the right lender, you find the right realtor. Them is going to be the two most important people on your team at that time in the beginning. 
is your lender and your realtor. And you want to make sure that they are knowledgeable. Because, like we said before, just because you sell houses don't mean you know how to sell multi-units. You know, there is a difference between a house and a triplex or a house and a four-unit. There is a difference. The house is not making you money. The house... You can gain equity on your home. Uh, that's a single family home. You can gain equity. But with four, uh, two, three, four units, especially with three and four units, you're not only gaining equity, but you're earning income. Now, it would have been nice if we could have, like, you know, we could have our four unit, uh, pay the mortgage, utilities, um, and our personal utilities as it was doing, and earn, you know, a lot of income but it earned us a lot of equity and we'll talk about equity late in a later podcast because that was so oh my gosh that was so important during our um during our ownership and because we were on the west coast there's a way that you work the deals too like in some areas of the United States, you'll have more passive income. So you'll have more income cash flow. Um, the liquidity is better, but like on the coast, you'll gain more equity. So you want to buy low, sell high, you know? So and what she mean really is, like, like she said, the West Coast, California, if you think of places like California, mm-hmm. Seattle, those properties... Um, if you're talking about owner occupying, meaning living on site, they're starting not to make sense from a number standpoint when you analyze it, because you're going to end up paying money out of pocket because the price of the property is so high. So what you're really, what a lot of people are really buying that property for, is the appreciation. Yes. And not the cash flow. Yeah. So you know when you get into this business, you're going to start knowing the areas where you know you're going to buy for appreciation in the areas where you're going to be buying for cash flow. And you got to kind of decide. Because some investors, they like, I, I ain't big on cash flow. I like appreciation. They, they're the buy and hold, and they want to hold 5, 10, 15, 20 years or whatever. But you got other people who like, nah, I want the cash flow because I want to replace my income on my job so I can retire, right? So, this, you know, there's a little difference on that. And, you know, there's a saying in the real estate world, is you make you don't make your money when you when you sell your property, you make your money when you buy it. And what that means is if you buy the property right when you sell it, you you're going to make your money. Yeah. If you don't buy it right, you either going to have to hold that property for a long time mm-hmm. or you may end up losing money. So, fortunately, we bought the property right and we got that appreciation cuz we bought it right before Seattle started booming yeah right like it was it was so crazy because when we were under that first deal the cedar property at the price that we were gonna buy that at and if you look at where it is now what the value of that property is now i mean it's a significant amount of appreciation there's a lot of people that made about six figures in a year two years Mm -hmm. just off of property in seattle if you bought your property in 2000, you know, 15, 16, 17, you know, early 17, you, you, you made a good amount of money. And, you know, like I said, fortunately for us, we bought at the right time and we sold at the right time. Um, 
And so, you know, it really, you know, and this is not a, a you know, a quick, a quick get rich uh, type of type of industry, you know. Hence the name Slow Wealth. Because, you know, you got to get into this for the long haul. You know, it, you're not going to make money. You're not going to always make money quick. We're not going to always buy, you know, and get appreciation like that. Right. You know what I'm saying? We were blessed enough to be able to get it at the right time where we was able to get that appreciation. But there's some people who, I mean, they don't see no appreciation like that 5, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. But we saw it, you know, in under a year. Like, that property appraised uh, almost 200000 yeah. in a year. In a year. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, and we was able to make the right decision after that to, you know, kind of capitalize on that. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, with all that said, we just kind of want to go over the steps to start investing until yeah. you're under contract. So the first step, the very first step, again, is to find you a good real estate agent. Again. A good real estate. Not would you any. say that's the first step? I would say the first step is credit due diligence. You know what? No, no. Well, no. Yes, yes. You're right. Yes, you're right. Credit due diligence. My fault. Take that back. Credit due diligence. Because <laughs> your credit due got to be right. Because if your realtor find out your credit is janky, <laughs> they're going to be mad. Yeah. So, yes, credit due diligence. Go to, uh, what is it, annualcreditreport.com. Yeah. Print out your credit report and look at it. Go through it. And see what do I owe? Do I got any charges off? Do I got any liens? Do I got a bankruptcy? Do I got you know child support, alimony, anything on your credit report that don't look right? Clean it up. Credit cards, you know, if you got a lot of balances or high balances, clean it up and 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 fix your debt to income ratio. And then as far as your credit, credit scoring is different. <laughs> You'll see for many different places, especially if you're. Um, you know, you're looking at some of your credit cards, what they their scoring models, and some banks for some reason are different. You know, it just kind of fluctuates, and you're trying to figure out the alg- algorithm. Um, I'll just give you a brief um, credit scoring model from Capital One, their um, tool CreditWise. 620 or less is below credit. Now, average credit is between 621 and 700. Good credit is between 701 and 760. Now, if you you want to be there, especially if you're getting a conventional loan, that's the 20% down or higher. So you definitely want to be there. Um, excellent is between 761 and 850. So that's kind of an example of um, your, you know, your where your credit score, uh, where you fall within the credit scoring model. Again, this is for the Capital One CreditWise tool. And then, um, so what would you say is the next step after credit due diligence? So after your credit due diligence, you make sure your credit is right, you pull your credit report, you see what's on there, you look at your, uh, you get your credit score, you know what your credit score is because when you go into the banks, they're going to ask you, you know, what do you think your credit score is? They're going to pull it anyway, but they're going to ask you. And so once you know all that, you go into the bank. Um, I'm sorry. You, you once you know all that, you get all that, and you get your pre-approval. You know when you go into the bank and you find the lender that you want to work with. You know you find the bank and you say, "All right, I'm cool with this bank, U.S. Bank, Chase Bank, whoever it is." You give them all your information, pay set, paycheck stubs, your bank statements, 
um, any 401k retirement plans that you have, they're going to tell you everything that they need. You give them all that information, they're going to do what they say is a pre-approval, and they're going to uh, qualify you, see, see how much house you can afford based off your income. Mm-hmm. And then once they do that, now you got to go find your property. But in order to find your property, you need what, Kendra? A real estate agent. A real estate agent. <laughs> so you need to have a good idea. And if you don't, it's, it's cool. Search. Google. Ask people. Hey, who do you know is a good real estate agent? Now, there's a lot of good agents out here, but a lot of them are knowledgeable about houses. And just because they can sell a four-unit, yeah. a three-unit, two-unit, does not mean that they're knowledgeable about that. So you want to kind of ask these realtors, hey, have you ever sold a four unit, a three unit, any multi family? Have you any sold any multi units? Have you worked with buyers who purchased multi units? That is or, the important question as the buyer or seller, you know. But like you said, more more importantly, buyers. Have you worked with any buyers that bought any multi family? And then I'm gonna tell you what I did. This is a good trick for you guys. I'm gonna tell you what I did. The area that I knew we wanted to buy in. I went into, uh, not the MLS, but I went on um, websites like Zillow uh, or Realtor.com, uh, Redfin, and I looked at units, properties, four-unit properties that were sold, um, and I actually looked at duplexes, triplexes, four-unit, any uh, multi-unit that was sold in that area, and I'll go back all the way a year, but more importantly, you want to go back at least like six months. And when you look at those properties that were sold, in that listing, it'll tell you who the seller's agent was and who the buyer's agent was. I'm a buyer. I want to see who the buyer's agent was. And then if I start seeing that same name on a couple of those listings, and I'm like, oh, they're, 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 uh, they have buyers that's buying multiple or buying uh, properties, and I see that you're an agent, and I see you in a couple of listings, then I'm going to call you. I'm a Google, and I'm gonna see what your knowledge is, and I'm gonna see, you know, and I'll talk to you. Hey, you ever sold any uh, multi units before? Oh yeah, I sold, you know, two, three, or whatever. And you tell them the area you're looking at, and they'll tell you. Oh, I know that area. I know the cap rate. I know, you know, I know that area, and I could tell you what's a good deal. See, that's how you find a good agent. That's yeah. a little nugget for you. And that their experience will speak for themselves. We didn't learn that until after. Uh, until we started looking for other properties in the Seattle area. So once we started looking at at properties in the Seattle area after purchasing our first unit, that's how Ramon found other agents um, for um, other properties that we were inquiring about. But the first two idiots that we had... I don't know idiots, but yeah. Well, they were when we was working with them because we missed out on a lot of deals. Nice people. Nice idiots, but um, oh, yeah. So we had to, um, we definitely had to change our strategy as to how we found those agents, and we were looking at that time for dual agents because we were like, so let me throw that out there yeah. too. Yeah, I know we throwing a lot of stuff out here, and I like I said, I, we try not to make these too long with podcasts because it has a lot of information. And sometimes, you know, we, we might leave out some things, but, you know, we want to make this podcast as long as it needs to be. So so when she says a dual agent, as a real estate agent, you have the seller's agent 
So the person who's selling their property, they have an agent that represents them. And the buyer who's buying the property, they have an agent that represents them. Now, normally, both sides charge 3% commission uh, to sell the property and to buy it. So as a seller, you're normally going to pay 6% commission to sell your property. But if the real estate agent, that's the seller's agent, if they represent the seller and the buyer, you normally can negotiate that commission lower. So as a seller, instead of me paying 6%, I can tell the my, my agent, hey, if you represent that buyer, I'm now I only want to pay you 4% because you're representing both of us. Now, it's beneficial for all of us because I can now know what the buyer, what they're going through as far as their financing and all that because my agent is representing the buyer as well. So that is another good way to for you to get your property accepted, you know, get your offer accepted and under contract is because you're saving the seller money. If you go in there and you give them what they offer or what they're asking for on the purchase price, mm-hmm. But you use their agent to buy the property. Now you just you just gave them what they asked for, and you just saved them money on the commission. Not eight to nine times out of ten, they're gonna accept your offer, unless somebody comes in there with cash. But most of the time, you're gonna get your offer accepted. Yeah, and you definitely want to speak um, to the agent to see if a dual agency or an intermediary in some states are possible, because it's not possible in every state. Um, because that agent has to walk a real narrow, fine line um, to be neutral toward both parties and not divulge confidential information um, during the uh, buying and selling process. But what what's the next uh, step? So so yeah, you find your agent. So we said you get pre-approved. You know, what you do your credit due diligence. Make sure your credit straight. You find uh, the lender. Get pre-approved. Once he tells you how much house you can go get, you find you an agent. I gave you a little nugget on how to find a good agent. Go in the, on one of these websites, Realtor Redfin, look at who sold some of these properties. And, you know, you can kind of interview the realtors and see. Now, after that is when you... You want to analyze, you want to find the property. You want to find what you're looking for. <laughs> and you want to analyze it. You know, during that time, too, if you do find something that um, you're interested in. Yep. So you find, you, you, you now your realtor is going to send you some properties. You tell them what you're looking for. They're going to start sending you properties. You find the one that you like. And if you want to see the inside, now, right now, because of the coronavirus, they're not really allowing that. But in normal circumstances, you would tell the realtor, hey, we like this property you just sent us. Can we go and see one of the units inside? They'll set it up, let you see the side inside the unit. If you kind, if you kind of like what you see, you can see if you can get any of the information pertaining to the property. And if you like it, you make an offer. If you get that offer accepted, now you just made your, you made your first offer and got your first property on the contract. Yeah, and then you'll give up your earnest money. You got two, three days to give up one percent of the purchase price. That's a good faith down payment, so to speak, because your earnest money, you don't lose that. I don't know if we said that before. Your earnest money goes towards your down payment. Yes. So you don't lose that money. Now, you can. the only way you can lose that money is, is if it, you back out. Mm-hmm. After your contingencies, you know, and we'll probably talk about that later, 
but you'll have certain contingencies that's in your contract. If you don't fulfill those, you can't lose your earnest money. So don't make an offer on a property that you ain't serious about and you don't have an exit out of that property. Yeah, absolutely. And what comes after that? After that, once you get your offer, your property accepted, then that's when you go to work. That's when, you know, if you got a good realtor, they'll already know what to ask for. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, you know, you need the leases, any anything that pertains to income on that property, you need. You need utility statements, you need leases, um, any addendums to go with that. You need uh estoppel. Estoppel. The estoppel certificate. Now that's mainly with multifamily, mm -hmm. five plus units, but sometimes you can get that with, with the residential. All that is is now you're saying a stopple certificate is basically the tenant agreeing to what their lease says. Because one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to buy a property and it close. And let's say the lease says that the tenant gave a five hundred dollar deposit, security deposit. But then the tenant says, Nah, I gave him a thousand. And I got receipts. And I got receipts. Well then guess what? You now gotta if if that tenant leaves, you now gotta give them that thousand dollar for deposit. Mm -hmm. Because you didn't verify that before you close. So the estoppel will be signed by the tenant and it gets signed by the seller. And they both have to agree on the terms of the lease. And if they both sign that, then it doesn't matter who said what after closing, you go by what that estoppel says. Yes, so, yeah. absolutely. So those are just, you know, some um steps that uh that happen you know up until the time you're under contract you know we just wanted to give a synopsis on that because from from this point on it gets real you know it gets real, <laughs> it gets real from this point on and the yeah. stories get more hilarious the scenarios get crazier with us mm. so be ready for episode 5, five. Yeah, for episode five, which will come um, next week. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we is there anything else that you want to leave to the look, good we, people? Like, like I said, we look, make take the leap. You know what I'm saying? Take what we're saying and get the information and just understand that, you know, this is not a game. You know, we're not lying. We're not playing. This is all factual. Uh, uh, everything we're telling you. And like she said, it, this might not, the same may not work for everybody. Some people didn't do it this way. This is just ways that work for us, yeah. and and it does work. Mm -hmm. You know, can we can we can show that, and so you know, start just by looking at properties, you know, and getting practice on that, and and see what you can look at and kind of know because when you have some knowledge, when you go out to find your lend your lender or your agent, you know, you want them to be a little surprised that you know a little something, and you don't want to be taken advantage of. So you know, again. If anybody, if you got any questions, comments, and you know, we, we're on Facebook, you can email us, um, you know, and definitely we'll, we'll answer you and tell you everything that we know, um, give you advice, opinions, tips, and uh, you know, we, we, we're going to give you some game. Yeah. It's going it's to be a lot more to come. Like you said, after this, when you get under contract, it, it gets real. It gets and then, real. you know, when you talk about going from the first property to the next property, to the next problem, you know, it, it gets a little different and you need to figure out how you can do it. So as we said before, we went from zero to 19 units, 
total, we've owned 23 units total. Um, and we've gone through a, an array of different things with every unit that we've, um, every property that we've owned, we've done FHA, which is the standard 3.5% down. That's a government backed loan. We've done conventional loan, which is a bank backed loan. Um, at mortgage, 20, mortgage backed securities, yeah. so it's not it's not backed by the federal government. Typically, twenty percent down. Uh, you know, it changes depending on situations, and we're also we're we have commercial property, so we've done every kind of loan. Refinancing, we have a portfolio loan which is commercial. You know, we do, we done a ten thirty one exchange. Uh, you know, in this we, four years, like we've done a lot. And yeah, and we've crazy. also. Um, entertained uh, um, investor loans. Uh, what oh, they yeah, private money. Private money hard lenders, money. hard yeah, money yeah. lenders. So we've done a lot of different types of lending. So if you have questions, I mean, obviously we're not experts when it comes to, you know, lending because we're not mortgage uh, lenders. But give us, you know, give us a um, shout out. Um, you can email us at invest at slowwealth.com. That's I-N-V-E-S-T at S-L-O-E-W-E-A-L-T-H dot com. Or hit us up on Facebook, Slow Wealth, S-L-O-E, Wealth. Um, I'm Kendra, and this is Ramon. Hey, you know what I'm saying? Get that wealth the slow way. You know what I'm saying? Success lives on elevation. Yes, baby. And remember... You can't pour from an empty cup. Remember to always take care of yourself first. Put your mask on first. And with that said, again, Kendra and Ramon, signing out. Yeah.